Good morning, church. How are we? Good. It's not exactly the response I was going for, but it is a response. You should have received one of these uh, bad boys at some point. Uh, I see somebody fanning themselves with them. They are good for that. It also is a little help that will, uh, should be of benefit to you as we, as we look at God's word this morning, sort of a guide, an outline uh, as to how we're going to be marching through this this morning. So we're continuing our multi-week um, study in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 2, 42 through 47, uh, where we see principles of the early church talked about. And, and so we've been expounding different ones of those. This morning, we're talking about breaking bread in homes, and you'll see what I'm talking about hopefully here in a second. With that, let me, let me, let me draw us together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help on this time this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning to uh, listen to your word, to heed your word, to love your word. We pray that you would be exalted this morning in our midst, that Christ would be glorified. Lord, that you would help me to clearly articulate um, the gospel, the good news, this life-changing, identity-shaping community forming message of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray, Father, this morning as well, uh, along the lines of Isaiah 55, Lord, the promise that your word, um, your word accomplishes its purposes in going out. Uh, and Lord, we pray that would be the case this morning. We pray, Father, that you would be convicting of sin, that you would be showing people the beauty and the glory of Jesus, that you would be, you'd be working in our midst powerfully this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I think it's safe to say I don't know everybody in this room, um, but I'd like to. Um, but I... I'm one of the leaders here at, um, at Liberty. My name is Derek Bass, and I have a unique job. The reason why we're in the Netherlands is I teach at Tyndale Theological Seminary in Bad Hubedorp. That's pretty good Dutch right there. <laughs> I've been working on it a while. And Bad Hubedorp is a little village of around 12,000 people between Amsterdam and Schiphol Airport. Okay, so we're right on the, the fringe. But the reason why I'm talking about this, Tyndale's a really unique school, and it's unique because we have about 40 to 50 program students, and within those 40 or 50 program students, they come from over 20 different nations. So from all over Asia, Africa, Europe, a few Americans sprinkled in there. It's a very diverse community, very interesting community. It's beautiful uh, in, in all of its uh, ways. Um, when we moved here in 2016, we spent the first seven months living on campus because we couldn't find a house. So we really got to know the community. Uh, we were eating all of our meals on campus, and it was really in that context that it really hit me as never before, just the power of food, uh, the importance of food for people and building community. We saw that 
firsthand. Let me explain a little bit what I'm talking about. We have a full-time cook named Karina at Tyndale, and she does a really awesome job because she's catering to a lot of different people, you know, lots of different nationalities, lots of different palates. And at times, she'll, she'll bring students together. If we have multiple students from a particular country, she'll bring them together, and, and they'll do a, a meal, like, from their cuisine. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a way for people to, to, to be a part and be excited about it. So that's, that's sort of the context of the little story that I'm going to tell. All right, so one afternoon at Tyndale, well after lunch and well before dinner, so it's probably about three or 1,500, however you say it, I left my office there, uh, there in the school, and I, and I proceeded to the lunchroom. Now, the reason I was going to the lunchroom wasn't for food. I, the coffee is there. You know, and I always have this sort of mid-afternoon swoon. I need to get my second dose of coffee <clears throat> going. I usually just need to run it intravenously through an IV. But I walked into the lunchroom and I stumbled up upon an unforgettable sight. It was four dear brothers, students of mine from West Africa, two countries in West Africa, Ghana and Nigeria. And they were eating from a common bowl. If you've ever heard of fufu. Uh, they were using the fufu to eat different sauces and soups and chicken. They were sharing and they were enjoying this, this food from their home country. And, and the looks on their faces, the sheer joy they were sharing was beautiful. They seemed as if to be transported to their home countries of Nigeria and Ghana. It was truly a heartwarming sight. You see, food can unite us at the deepest of levels, especially that level of cultural or social identity. I know when we head home to the States, there are a checklist of foods that I need to eat when we go back to Texas. It's mainly Tex-Mex, 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 and some more Mexican food. But especially in the case of these brothers missing their loved ones in their home countries, this shared meal was a moment of solidarity. It was camaraderie. It was commiseration, identity building, and no doubt it was, it was for them a little foretaste. That's what I meant when I said they looked as if they were transported. It's like they weren't in, at Tyndale and they weren't in the Netherlands at all. They were in Ghana. And they were in Nigeria. Uh, they could taste it and, and see it. Well, this morning we're continuing on our series in Acts 2, 42 through 47, with a special focus this morning on part of 246. It begins, and day by day, there in 246, and then the rest that I'm preaching, because I'm not talking about their time in the temple. Leonard did that yesterday, or last, last Sunday, and he did it yesterday well, also. It was beautiful. You missed it. Day by day, they're breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So we're looking at this passage within the larger context of 2, 42 through 47 in the book of Acts itself. And I'd state, you'll see it on the outline, the thesis, uh, state the, the thrust of the sermon this morning like this. Breaking bread together regularly in homes should bind our hearts together more deeply form our identity in Christ, deepen our joy in God, and increase our longing for heaven, 
Jesus' eschatological kingdom. That is, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. We're awaiting the fullness. So notice how I highlight and underline here should, because it's not a guarantee, but it should, breaking bread together, should be a community-forming sort of thing. More on this in a bit. But look with me at Acts 2, 42 through 47. So we get this bit that we're looking at today in a little bit of the larger context. This is right after the day of Pentecost, right after 3,000 have been added to the original like 120 believers. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now this morning we're going to look at what we're going to call the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the early churches gathering together in these private meetings and homes. Okay, we're not going to do it in that order. You'll see the order there. But we're going to talk first about the who. It's not an English rock band, but the who. Who is this passage talking about? Well, it's talking about believers, fundamentally the earliest Jewish Christians, followers of Messiah, born out of the witness of the early followers of Christ and the fulfillment of his promise in Acts 1.8. Back in Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now this happened in Acts 2 with the birth of the church at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the inbreaking of the promised new covenant sealed in the blood of Christ that Jeremiah the prophet spoke of in chapter 31 and Ezekiel 36. Moreover, Acts 1-8 gives us a bit of a blueprint of how the book of Acts moves. Spirit-empowered witness to Christ, declaring his gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. These are concentric circles. Jerusalem is a town in the area of Judea. Samaria is to the north, right? And as the gospel goes to Samaria, it's crossing outside of strict Jewishness. It's crossing an, an ethnic border, as it were, and then to the ends of the earth. So Acts 2 starts with the apostles in Jerusalem, 120 believers, the spirit falling, 3,000 converted, and then Acts 28 ends with the Apostle Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles imprisoned in Rome. You see, the gospel has moved from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, right? It's permeated the Roman Empire, what was known to be the the, 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 the whole earth at that time, as it were. And so this passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47, which we 
which we read a moment ago, is a summary of this group, the, the early 120 followers plus the 3,000 converts. It's about who they are, what they're about. It's the first of several summaries that Luke gives us throughout the gospel as he punctuates the structure of the book, the message of the movement of the gospel. And I'm going to read some of these to you. You see them listed there. But I want to look first at Acts 4, 32 through 37. And I'm going to read these to you. And I want you to listen. You may not have a Bible with you or you may not have it on your phone, but just listen to some of the similarities that you're going to hear between these passages and the one already read. Each of these are summary statements. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and, bought and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then it talks about Barnabas, who will become a known commodity, going with Paul on one of his missionary journeys, coming and selling his land and then bringing it all and, and, and laying it there at the apostles' feet. So we see their fellowship, they're having all things in common. One of the key things from Acts 2.42, we see the proclamation of the gospel, right? They're declaring that Jesus is the Christ. They're proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. Look now at Acts 5.12-16, and then we'll jump down to verse 42. These are two separate summaries. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the peoples by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is uh, a space on the east side of the temple. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Uh, these are common themes from 242 through 47. And, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People all gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's a pretty powerful demonstration of the Spirit working through the apostles. And then verse 42, which is very similar to our verse this morning, or our section this morning. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So not only were they breaking bread house to house, but, but proclamation, teaching and preaching, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, or technically the ESV renders it the Christ is Jesus, that the Messiah is Jesus. The long way to Messiah is that Jesus of Nazareth who you crucified, and they say this over and over again in the book of Acts, who you crucified, but God raised him from the dead, demonstrating that he is the Christ. And so they're pressing this, pressing this, pressing this into the life of the community, the people of God. You may be happy to know that these summaries start getting shorter. All right, Acts 6-7. Listen carefully, this is good stuff. And the word of God continued to increase. I love the way gospel proclamation is talked about here. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that language of increasing and multiplying, there's no doubt it's echoing, it's, it's alluding, it's picking up on the original creation mandate of Genesis 1.28, where God creates male and female, Adam and Eve in his image, and he creates us as image bearers to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to rule over it and subdue it. Our original calling, our original purpose in life was to fill God's earth with his glory by filling it with sinless image bearers that would reflect the glory of God beautifully. And so what, what is Luke doing here? He's saying that in these people, in this raggedy bunch of people called the church, this offshoot of Judaism, God is fulfilling his original creation mandate through the mission of the church. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, for a people that we can kind of sit back and say, woe is me, why am I here, what is my purpose in life? Boom! God creates everything out of nothing. He creates humanity to rule over, to, 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 to be his vice regents. And sin enters in, we screw it up, and God graciously promises a plan of redemption that he's just been unpacking, unveiling from Genesis onward. He renewed it with Noah after the flood, and then command becomes promise with Abraham. And he continues now working through his people. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Samaria, and, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot Galilee, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love that fear and comfort. Those don't seem like they maybe go together, but they do in the gospel, right? God is infinitely holy, and yet he is infinitely loving, right? Uh, he is one that we should come before with fear and trembling and yet run in and jump on his lap as our father. There's, these, there's just this, I mean, God is amazing. He's too great to, to wrap our mind around. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied again, again echoing Genesis 1.28. And then Acts 12.24, but the word of God increased and multiplied again, tapping, tapping as the gospel goes forth as they are proclaiming Christ and him raised from the dead. God is fulfilling through this group of people his original mandate. Some of the key themes from Acts 2.42 were reiterated in these passages. Luke is presenting this new community, listen, as the true Israel of God. The fulfillment of all of God's promises through the prophet. Acts 2 Peter's proclaiming Joel 2. It's the day of the Lord. Just as Jesus promised that he'd pour out his spirit when he, was, when he ascended to the right hand, that Joel, Peter's preaching Joel 2. He's like, that, that's happening. That's happening right now. That's what you're seeing. He's pouring out his spirit. He's ascended to the right hand, and he is ruling and reigning, and he is pouring out his spirit, and he's working through the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the true temple of God. So even though they're meeting in the temple, I don't think they were confused about who they were because God's presence no longer dwelt in the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies of the temple. 
The very presence of God by his spirit now dwelt in the hearts of individual believers. And when believers gather together, all the New Testament's clear about this. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, we are the temple of the living God. We are the place of his presence. His Shekinah glory is upon us. Right, it moved off the temple when Jesus came on the scene. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? And now the glory of God, his presence rests on us, his people. So who, who are these people and who are we? We're the temple of the living God. We're, we're those through whom God is fulfilling all of his purposes in all of creation through the gospel, through the proclamation of this one who is resurrected. So God is making all things new and it's starting with us. It's starting with individuals, turning from their sin, repenting, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, being made new creatures, but he's doing that all in view of ultimately making all things new. And this thing's going on like house to house. This is the the thing about the gospel that blows my mind. It seems so insignificant. It seems like what we're doing here is so insignificant, and yet it is massively significant. It is God's plan to save a people for himself and ultimately bring us back to dwell in his presence forever and ever and ever. He's fulfilling his mission through the church. This is our identity. This is who we are. And brothers and sisters, it's massive. And if you don't know Christ, if you're outside of Christ and you consider, and you're considering Christ, this is what you were made for. This is who you were made for. So that's the who. You might be keen to know that all eight points or whatever I have here aren't going to be the same length. So that was the who. The where, that's pretty clear, homes. Here, here in this section of 246, it's talking about their meeting together in homes, house to house, breaking bread. And this was a common thing. When you look at Acts 542, which I already referenced every day in the temple, that from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching the Christ as Jesus. And we see later in Acts, Acts 2020, Paul is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus they're at Miletus, and he's talking to them about they're never going to see him again. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful moment. But he says to them how he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was profitable, teaching them in public and teaching house to house. Right. So what I want you to catch here is there is a public aspect. Maybe even you might say even in the early church like this large gathering and then smaller gatherings. The reality is, though, after the church moves out from the temple through persecution, it's the private setting that really becomes the the locus of the church in houses. And and Roman homes could often, uh, folks who were fairly well-to-do, um, homes could hold 20 or 30 people in, the, in a common space, some of them up to 100 people. And so this is where the church really begins to grow and permeate the Roman Empire and affect the world. When? This is going to be my shortest point. Daily. Day by day. But Acts 27 through 11 and other places reveal that it will eventually become a weekly rhythm, the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week. 
And, and this is largely due to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Listen, though, to Acts 20, 7 through 11. It has several connections with our passage this morning, uh, both the breaking of bread and, and the idea of sort of a formal meeting. This is the, co- the context of this bit, because I'm not going to read the whole thing, is when Paul is in Troas and he's, and he's teaching, he teaches all night long, and anybody remember the name of the guy, Eutychus, who's kind of sitting in the window, and Paul goes on and on and on again, and Eutychus falls out of the window from the third floor. He dies. Paul picks him up, you know, raises him from the dead. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing uh, uh, scene there. But here's the setting. Luke writes, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, So this seems like a formal meeting going on and now a weekly sort of thing. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and this this is Luke talking. He was traveling with Paul. That's where the we comes from. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, don't let that scare you. I'm not planning on prolonging my sermon until midnight. I'm, I'm really actually pretty tired, so... You know, I don't have the stamina for that. I don't have Paul's stamina. Uh, but they were meeting together daily, then ultimately weekly. This is the when they were meeting, the what. What were they doing here in 246? Um, likely, just as uh, Acts 27 through 11 speaks of both breaking and bread and apostolic teaching, they were probably... The apostolic teaching is probably going on as well, but the focus here in 246, our passage this morning, is they're breaking bread. So the question is, is this a, is this a common meal, the, the, the breaking of bread, or is it the Lord's Supper? Maybe you've never thought about it. Well, I can tell you scholars are divided on this, and it seems like about 75% say one thing and 25% say another thing. So, what do I say? Is that what you're saying? wondering? Is it a common meal or is it the Lord's Supper? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's yes uh, because this language is used, this verbal phrase, breaking of bread, is used 14 times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the Last Supper. It's used when Luke, who wrote Luke and wrote Acts, uh, it's used of the meeting in Acts 27 through 11. And then Paul, who's the one teaching in Acts 27 through 11, writes 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 use this term, breaking of bread, to refer to a larger meal within which the Lord's Supper was being Celebrated. So in the early church, really until about midway through the second century, uh, there was a larger meal within which the church would celebrate the Eucharist, the sacrament of the, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. All right. So there was a common meal within which, um, within which the supper was being celebrated. Uh, and it it really is then the Eucharist, the, 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 the Lord's Supper, communion, which 
really paints the picture of what coming together to the table for Christians is all about. Uh, It's what I think would orient every meal in the early church and on, even if let's say they are breaking bread, but they're not actually taking the Lord's Supper. I don't think they could conceive of coming together as a group to eat without considering why, why are we coming together? Who's the, who, what's the reason for our gathering? And, and it's Jesus, it's the gospel, it's what he's done for us. So the why, the Lord's Supper itself, why did they gather daily and then weekly in homes and break bread? The, the answer is simple, it's Jesus. Breaking bread in their homes was something that was, is, and should be completely and totally about him. Whether it was at the center of the meal or the climax of the, of the larger meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 is crystal clear about that. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke 22. And we'll look at Luke's description of Jesus instituting the supper. And it's really clear within the larger context. We're going to look at verses 14 through 20. But it's, it's clear this is all set up very clearly within the context of uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are two feasts that are, are linked together. So this is Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's interesting. In the original, the noun for Passover and the verb for suffer are cognates. You you know, uh, there's intentional connection. I've longed or desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. They're drinking from a common cup. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I want to look at five different things that the Lord's Supper communicates to us, okay? The way this is meant to land upon us and affect us. The first thing is that it's an enacted parable. Now, does anybody know what an enacted parable is? Okay, somebody, I know somebody back there does. Okay, well, here's a great example of an enacted parable, probably one that will make you wince a little bit. But the prophet Hosea, his, the first word that he heard from the Lord was, go marry a wanton woman. Marry a woman of ill repute. 
and, and his marriage and the subsequent children were, were an enacted parable of Yahweh's relationship with Israel and their rebellion and their disobedience. Another one would be Isaiah walking around for three years naked because of a judgment that he was proclaiming. That's, that's living what you're preaching, right? Okay, so an enacted parable is when you do some sort of a symbolic act that's pointing to a reality. But it's something you can touch. It's something that, that, that hits your senses differently than just information transfer. Right, so in this meal, Jesus is giving us an enacted parable. He is enacting it, right, because he's not dead yet. So you're going to go on and read in Luke 23, 24, you're going to read of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Jesus, this last supper that he's having with his disciples, he is interpreting that event right there with them. With bread. Something that they could touch. Something that when they broke that unleavened bread and they crunched it in their mouth, they were thinking about his body broken for them. It hits our senses very differently than just Jesus died for you. It's a real grace that God has given us this, something concrete, something tangible. And the same thing as the, 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 the wine, the warm wine would wash down their throats considering that this is the blood. This, this cup of the new covenant is his blood poured out for us, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't think Jesus in John 6 was teaching cannibalism, but he said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It's a reminder that we need him. He doesn't need us. We need him in a very fundamental way. And this meal is an enacted parable where he was enacting before it happened, what would happen. And then he's given it to us to reenact as we come to the table this morning. If you're in Christ, you're invited to come and reenact this. And I recommend reenact this. Go through the paces. Don't just grab bread. Don't just grab the cup and do it whimsically. Consider his body, his shed blood. Secondly, the Lord's Last Supper is a fulfillment of the Passover and new exodus. It's not an accident that he's initiating this rite in the midst of the Jewish Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you know nothing of what the Jewish Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are, these, this is a festival that grew out of a point in redemptive history where God, after 400 years of his people being in slavery, came down and with his mighty arm redeemed his people from Egypt and the tyranny of Pharaoh, uh, who was massacring the sons of, of, of the Israelites, casting them into the Nile, killing them and casting them into the Nile. And so, another enacted parable, thank you. Another, I'll take a sip now. Another enacted parable really is this, is this feast. It's integral to their identity, to remember what Yahweh has done, right? We were enslaved, and he brought these plagues on Pharaoh. He, he crushed the strongest man in the world to redeem us, 
And in this last plague, it was the Passover, where he tells them in their homes to take a Passover lamb, to slaughter it, and then to smear the blood on the the doorposts and the lintels of the house. So that as the Lord passed over in judgment through Egypt, every house that in faith had smeared that blood, the death angel would pass over. But every house that didn't have that blood, the firstborn child would be killed. And that's what brought about the release of Israel from Egypt. And the other bit of it was he told them to to make this unleavened bread, this hard bread without leaven so that it wouldn't rise because you don't have time for it to rise. You're gonna get out of there in a hurry. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking those components from the Passover and he's reinterpreting them in himself. Yes, this bread, which is a reminder that you were to flee under the saving hand of God. Actually, this, this bread is my body, broken for you, which is gonna secure that release. Your release from the tyranny, not of Pharaoh, but of the devil. is gonna break your bondage to the power of sin so that you will no longer be enslaved anymore. And this cup, this, this cup is is the new covenant in my blood. It's it's for the forgiveness of your sins because you've offended a holy God and you can't come into his presence. But he has done everything to make a way to bring you in. Right, all of these meals in the Old Testament, they were all about bringing us back into the presence of God to dwell with him, to eat with him, to be with him. And now Jesus, God in the flesh, is giving these tokens, these symbols to his people. He's with his people, celebrating the fulfillment of what the Passover was pointing to and the new exodus that he is going to enact through his death, burial, and resurrection. The third thing is the inauguration of the new covenant. We don't have time to go deep here, but the the language here in Luke 22, 14 through 20 is thick. The texture is thick, echoing passages like Exodus 24, which is the ratification of the old covenant. Moses on Sinai with the people, with Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders. And they see a vision of God. And before that, they had ta- he had taken the blood of the slaughtered animals and he had sprinkled the blood on the altar and upon the people and upon the book of the covenant. Right, this is a covenant right, bringing them into relationship. And then they see God, this vision of, 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 of Yahweh that's similar to some of the visions in, in Ezekiel. They, they see him and they eat uh, the seven, M- Moses plus the priest plus the 70 elders, they eat on the mountain with God. They, they have a meal with, with, with God. Again, the point being God's covenanting. He's bringing us into relationship with him where we sup with him. There's, there's a real, the, the, the reality of his presence, it's real. It's, it, he's, he's with us. Language from 
Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, and then the fourth servant song where the sinless one is, is crushed and his blood is poured out. Jesus is inaugurating the new covenant in his blood. Fourthly, this meal is community identity formation. And this may be, honestly, this may be the most important thing I say this morning. Community identity formation. I think so much of our difficulties in, in life go to this issue of identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? A, a lot of insecurity, a lot of pride, a lot of, you know, putting our best foot forward or trying to impress people. It comes from this insecurity of, of not really being comfortable with who we are, comfortable, as they say, in our own skin, right? And this meal gets at the root of that identity crisis. This meal radically reorients us in the gospel. What is my identity fundamentally? Is it what I do for a living? Is it Derek the professor? Every one of us can fall into that trap. Who am I? Well, I make a good living. I support my family. I'm a scholar. Oh, I finally got a book published or articles published. Look, my name's in print. This issue of who we are. Is it, is it where I'm from? Derek the American, Derek the Texan. That is pretty cool, I gotta say. <laughs> Fundamentally, this meal forces us to ask, who am I? And the answer is the same for us all. I am a broken sinner. I'm damaged goods. I cannot save myself before holy God. I am no better than you, and you are no better than me. None of us are more deserving of the grace of God. We are all equally deserving of the wrath of God. And he made a way through the crushing of his beloved son in our place, in my place. You see, this meal isn't just about me only either. It's about community formation. It's not just about God rightly reorienting me to himself. It is that, but it's not only that. He's also rightly reorienting us to one another in this meal. That's when, when Paul goes at the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, the reason why he goes at them is their so-called Lord's Supper, a part of this meal, wasn't a Lord's Supper because they were showing favoritism, the haves versus the have-nots. And some people were going away hungry, other people were getting drunk, right? There was these social stratifications, the haves and the have-nots. And Paul's saying, what are you thinking? The meal itself rebukes you. You're all equally needy of the blood and the body of Christ. The ground before the cross is level. Nobody's more deserving. You see, this meal forms us. This meal forms us, shapes us, our identity, who we are before God, but who we are with one another. We're equal. Also within Within that evening, he was betrayed in John 13. 
John records how Jesus stripped himself naked, put a towel around his waist, and he went around like a slave washing his disciples' feet. That too was an enacted parable, right? He was about to go to the cross and be hung naked to wash them, to cleanse them, to cleanse us from all of our sins. This is another example of the upside-down kingdom that is the gospel. He calls us to this, where the king suffers for the peasants. He suffers for his servants. He is the king who is a suffering servant. Now, will you serve? Will you lay down your life? This meal reorients us to be servants, not masters. We are the have-nots. None of us are the haves before an infinitely holy God. If Jesus is stripped naked for us to serve us, how am I above serving any one of you at any time? God served me. This meal orients us toward God in Christ, toward one another in the body, in a particular local expression of the body of Christ. You, you, if you're a Christian, you have to be in covenant community with other Christians for this to work. You can't freelance, church hop, and be doing this. Right? You, you have to be around people that are going to irritate you, rub you the wrong way. You're going to sin against them. They're going to sin against you. And you get to be formed by this meal. Break this bread. The same Jesus died for you that died for me, and he's making us one. We are his body. We are his body. And lastly, not lastly in the sermon, but lastly in this section, and I'll speed up. This is an appetizer of the eschatological banquet. You see that language in Luke 22 where he talks about not eating it new until he eats it with him in the kingdom? Right? The, the, the meal is an anticipation. And it's an anticipation of Revelation 19.9 where it speaks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we come and, we, and we, we take this meal together or even when we sup together in our community groups where we may not be taking the actual Lord's Supper but our meal together, our common meal, is shaped by it. It's just like an hors d'oeuvre, an appetizer for the eschatological marriage banquet supper of the Lamb where we will feast in the presence of God. We will be with him. We will be with him forever and ever. Another quick way to look at the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper helps us to look back. It helps us to live in the present and it helps us to look forward. So it's kind of that triang triangular triangulation, something like that. I don't know if that even works. But anyway, it causes us to look back to the cross. It causes us to be shaped right now in the presence. And it causes us to long for the new heavens and the new earth, for the eschatological banquet of the Lamb. Next, how. How. What is the manner in which they were sharing in their food? It says in 246, with glad and generous hearts. This language communicates intense joy and sincerity, which is completely fitting with a Jesus-centered meal and time of sharing together with one's brothers and sisters in Christ. Th these feelings are aimed both at God, they're being glad, and toward one another, they're being generous. And again, that's what this meal does. It forms us to do this. But our coming together, our, our, our living life in community, our doing life together, is a key part of our 
ongoing joy in the gospel because he hasn't saved us simply in isolation, but he saved us into a body. Uh, the sixth point is just to drive home that other things were going on when they met house to house. Apostolic teaching, no doubt prayers, no doubt fellowship. So these main key ideas were going on at different times within the early church. Breaking bread together regularly in our homes should bind our hearts together more deeply, form our identity in Christ, deepen our joy in God, and increase our longing for heaven, Jesus' eschatological kingdom. You may recall in the beginning I said that I wanted to stress the word should. The reality is just being in community, just being in a small group doesn't guarantee this for you. You see, if we're going to experience some of what the early Christians experienced, then we have to be of the same sort, the same transparency, uh, the same openness, uh, the willingness to really see Christ exalted in our midst. And it doesn't happen if we are closed off or we come to groups sort of putting our best foot forward. Everything's always great, grand, and wonderful. You ever meet people like that? Everything's always great. And I get suspicious because I'm thinking, things can't always be great, right? But Christ will not be exalted in our large group gatherings or in our small group gatherings if we've got it all figured out. If we're great, we're good, great, grand, wonderful all the time. No, that's insincere. He's exalted when we come in this meal, which is at the heart of it, is a thumping reminder. You're not great, you're not grand, and you're not wonderful. But he loves us, and he died for us, and this is shaping us. And so getting together in small groups is really about doing one another good in the gospel. We live out these one another passages all throughout the New Testament. We live out in different ways the apostolic preaching. We live out the prayers, the fellowship. Not in the same exact way as our large group gathering. So this is sort of a commercial. In September, we'll be launching our, our home groups on a little bit of a break this summer. But if, if Liberty's home for you, but you're not in a community group, a home group that you're consistent with, I, I can't encourage you enough to make that a priority, to weekly be there. If you're a husband and wife, I, let me encourage you to make it happen in your budget where you can get a sitter where both of you can be there every week. It's that important. Doing life together weekly, checking in, being accountable, we do the apostolic preaching there not because I get up and, and preach uh, or anybody gets up and preaches, but Colossians 3.16 talks about the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, right? And this idea is the reverberation of the preached word of Christ. And we can one another by coming to group, ready to talk a little bit about the sermon we heard on Sunday. What was it that was said that's convicting us? How is God working through his word? And we can do one another good in the gospel. 
And of course, we pray for one another. I have, the, I have the privilege of leading the best home group in this church. I don't think there's any argument about that, is there, Luther? We have been through a lot this year. Two of us have lost parents. One couple lost a baby. We, we've been there to bear one another's burdens. I mean, I'm in Houston. My dad's still hooked up to tubes, and my home group sends me sandwiches for my whole family in the hospital. And they're across the Atlantic Ocean, and they're loving me, loving me. So I would, I would plead with you, don't miss the blessing of being intimately intimately related to one another in the gospel by being a part of one of the small groups that we have. I just can't encourage you enough. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your great love for us in Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would help us. Lord, Help us to look to you, to trust in Christ, to be humble before you, to be dependent upon you, that you, dear Jesus, might be magnified and glorified in our lives. Lord, ultimately, our desire is to see your templing presence filling this great city of Amsterdam. And we pray, Lord, that you would take and use a band of little misfit toys like us to do that. Lord, that's how you like to work. That's what we saw in your word. This little group meeting from house to house. And you're gonna use us to change the world. Do it, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.